Welcome to Potadelphia. My name is Dave Diorio. You can find me on Twitter at fat underscore lobster. And I'm joined by a guy who's required to take one three-pointer a game. What's up, Gene? Yo, what's up, Dave? Uh, yeah, one three-pointer a game, and it'll probably be an air ball. Um, but you have to take it. That's the most yeah, important Yeah, I mean, that's thing. really what it comes down to. They have to respect that I'll probably airball it once a game. And honestly, Dave, uh, speaking of my air balls, I actually bought, uh, brought along with me today the guy that taught me everything I know about man-to-man defense. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's my buddy Jason Blevins from the Painted Lines. And uh, him and I go way back to uh, basically to a basketball court called the Cedars down here in Delaware. I don't know if any of our listeners yep. are familiar with the Cedars. Uh, but if you have played there, you know that you got to play the divot on the uh, – uh, in the in the paint, you know, it's basically an extra defender uh, and always, you know, try to force your defender to have to go through the gravel. Uh, once you do that, then then you're golden. So, um, Jason, why don't you uh, talk a little bit about you, yourself, what you do, and then we'll 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 just go down the the, the Sixers rabbit hole, as they say. Yeah. So uh, Gene and I do go way back and we um I think Gene, you had to defend me in most games uh, at Cedars, and so we did play. Uh, we did defend each other a lot. Um, uh, I am Jason Blevins. I uh, uh, am with the Painted Lines. Uh, we are a sports and culture and music and nonsense uh, website, YouTube channel. We've got a bunch of podcasts. We've got a lot of great people doing a lot of great work. Uh, my role there primarily is I am the 76ers beat reporter. So I've been covering the, the 76ers um, as uh, on the beat for this will be my third full season. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's um, it's been uh, it's been an exciting ride for us. We have been around for, I think, a little less than uh just under uh, three years, we're about 2.5 years we've been around, and um, it's been a fun ride for us. So the, the way I sort of set this up, because uh, it, it's been just, uh, you could talk just about the last probably four days in Sixersdom and, and have three hours worth of content. So I sort of thought it might be good, um, maybe just as we were getting ready to warm up for this thing, we could talk a little bit about how did the Sixers kind of get to where they are? And maybe we could go back to uh, the double doink game uh, in Toronto. Jason, you were in the building for that game. Uh, Sort of the beginning of what became the experiment that was last season. And and why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience of of covering the team during that playoff run with Jimmy Butler and um, sort of what maybe led to some of the decisions that got us into last season and, and, and how we got to today. Yeah. I think, I think you make a great point about that series being pivotal um, for where they are today. So um, the Jimmy Butler experiment, as everyone knows, lasted about half a season. Um, He resonated pretty well with, Joel Embiid didn't resonate well with some of his other teammates, um, really didn't um, connect well at all with uh, Brett Brown and the coaching staff. I would see him often, I mean, very early on, within a month or so of arriving, arguing with assistants about some of the defensive concepts uh, that that they were asking them uh, him to run. Um, really starting in game one, uh, in Toronto, um, he made some some really interesting decisions. Uh, they put the ball in his hands a lot in that game, and um, it was hit or miss. In fact, I talked to him the day after uh, about his decision-making, and he was a, a little bit offended. But I'll say this, starting it post-game after game one, um, you got a real sense that there was a disconnect. Uh, I remember Rich Paul sort of looming over the post-game press conference. You couldn't see it on TV, but for us, there, um, you know, we're interviewing Ben Simmons and Jimmy Butler and Joel after Game One, and um, Rich. Did I say Chris Paul? I meant Rich Paul. Right. right. Um, Rich Paul uh, and. Um, 
and Ben Simmons' dad were sort of uh, looming over that press conference. I think everyone that noticed it, it uh, saw that it was pretty uncomfortable. And that's really when, when real questions started to be raised about does does the does the chemistry work uh, with these guys? Um, as as you saw that series play out, uh, there were good moments. There were really tough moments. Um, you know the the heartbreaking uh, final possession. Um, I think it's been well documented, uh, but I'll tell you that going back uh, to the locker room and back to the tunnel, you saw a absolutely devastated, emotionally devastated Joel Embiid. Um, one of the things that that uh, I don't think has been reported that much about that moment was he couldn't physically bring himself, or I guess he couldn't emotionally let himself go into that locker room and accept that it was over. Um, but there were so many cameras in the tunnel that he sort of stayed in the vestibule between the tunnel and the locker room. And it's really only about a, you know, five or six foot wide um, hallway that's only about 10 feet long. And we had to go past him to get in and out of the locker room. And you, when you're, when you're doing these kind of post-game situations, you're running from the locker room to the uh, to the podium where they're doing post-game um, availability for the stars and back to the locker room to talk to the role players. And we really had to for about 40 minutes after that game. We had to go physically go right past a devastated Joel Embiid. Finally, he was able to go into the locker room. But, I mean, when they, they you know, and people made fun of him for for crying in the, uh, in the tunnel, I mean... There's no way that on a human level you could you could say that he he hadn't given everything uh, to that team. But coming out of that series, uh, to your point, it was pretty clear that Jimmy Butler and and Ben Simmons and Brett Brown were were not going to work together uh, again. Brett Brown was almost fired uh, after that series. It, it was much closer to a reality um, than was reported at the time. I had a lunch with some folks in like July uh, of that year from the team uh, who confirmed that you know, it was much closer to Brett uh, being let go than maybe we would have thought. Uh, but that led them to really trying to go for some good character locker room guys, which led to bringing Josh Richard Richardson in via trade and signing Al Horford. And I think looking back, you can say that uh, while those are good locker room guys uh, on the floor, just didn't complement what Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid do well. Um, and you saw throughout this past season that it just didn't it just didn't work. And and when it doesn't work on the floor, no matter if you have a bunch of good people, nice people, um, the chemistry in the locker room is always going to be strained. There were no arguments, there's no drama, but. You know, that was not a team that was very close. Um, they certainly weren't friends. Uh, a lot of awkwardness. People didn't exactly know their role, which I think leads to Daryl Morey, Doc Rivers coming in to replace uh, Brett Brown. So let me, let me ask you before you, yeah. you get into that. Sure. There was there was a, a point probably, first of all, was that typical of Joel Embiid to take things quite as hard as he did that loss in Toronto? Or was that completely sort of out of character? Uh, I certainly hadn't seen him take a loss like that um, prior to that, and, and I've covered plenty of his games. Um, but I don't I don't think he gets enough credit for being a pretty seriously competitive person. Um, he's a very competitive person, um, but I don't think we had seen that emotional side of him, no. Do you think he sort of got, got a vibe that if, if him and Jimmy Butler didn't do it, then, like, if they didn't get past that game and go on probably to play Milwaukee and then and then go on to to maybe contend for a title, do you think he had a feeling that this was not going to they weren't going to be able to run it back, so to speak? Yeah, I think they, I think they were all aware of the clashes and the awkwardness. Jimmy Butler is not a person who stays quiet at all. 
Like, he doesn't care who's watching. He um, he certainly plays favorites. Uh, he I think he's a really good fit with a very young team of non-stars in Miami. But I think he clashes with uh, people that have healthy egos. Um, I think he, he clashes with other stars uh, quite was, a bit. Was it ever so simple as Brett or Jimmy, or was there always this Ben Simmons complication in there? So it was never possible for the Sixers to move on from Brett and then keep Jimmy. You know, it might have been possible to convince Ben and his his people, but you remember Ben was eligible for a, a Supermax extension at the time as well. Um, I think it was possible that they could have convinced him to let them move on, hire a new coach, and give it one more try, and maybe move at the trade deadline if it didn't work. But I think there were certainly... There and then let Tobias Harris people go. who didn't want him back. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Do Do you think that Jimmy wanted to stay? If If it was just an, a matter of, of of them offering him the the money, would he have stayed, or do you think that they they just were not in a position where they could even really consider that a real uh, reality? I I got the sense he he wasn't all that interested in staying. You know, there, and there's a there's a couple of different reasons, but yeah, I don't I don't think after the first few months he was uh buying into the program whatsoever so uh you know we fast forward we go we get into the bubble um and i i'm I'm guessing that that certainly changed how you cover the the team uh when they're in in florida and and everybody else is here um did you get any uh sense that just the environment itself especially considering the way that that sixers team was so heavily slanted towards having a home uh like a home environment advantage so to speak um when you basically put them where every game is a road game uh do you think that there was i don't want to say that there is necessarily a a quit on them um you know but do you think that there was just they were just set up in that situation that the way that team was built was never going to be able to work in an environment that was that sort of hectic and crazy Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. One, um, Elton Brand is uh, sort of soft-spoken and quiet, and he really built a team that was mostly full of quiet, soft-spoken guys, um, with the exception of Jimmy Butler. Once he was gone, you didn't have a lot of outgoing extroverts. And one of the big questions when they started to reboot, um, this is a question I've asked Elton multiple times and Brett Brown is how do you really get these guys to talk enough to each other to form that team? And you would hope, and I think they did hope going into the bubble that Tobias Harris was hosting nightly Zoom calls really from March through July, um, that he was going to be that person that pulled everyone together and that bunker mentality of being in the bubble together might forge a team. Brett talked about it multiple times. Um, but you, what you saw was that that flat out didn't happen. So you had, you know, 300 or so, 250 or so NBA players in that bubble. And the lines, you weren't really hunkered down with your own team. You could You could socialize with players from other teams uh, within your, there's a few different campuses, but if you're on the same campus, there's nothing forcing the team to really bond together. And I think when they hit a Boston team, which really can expose your flaws on the floor, they just, they just didn't have that sort of inner bond. Is this more of a, is this more of a trait of a Brett Brown team? Cause I see other NBA teams they get free agents. They put them in a they put them in a pot together. They stir them up, and you have an instant championship caliber team. And for all these years, when we've sort of mixed the bag up with Brett, we've heard these guys haven't spent enough time together. They've only had like a half season playing with each other, and, and all of this like we need additional leash for them to to bond together. And it just never really seemed to work. So is that sort of a, a deficiency in Brett Brown's coaching that he was never able to really galvanize a, a, a group of personalities like that? 
Yeah, I think it's a, I think a couple of things. He was very talkative. He was the face of the franchise. I think he over talked. He allowed those introvert, introverted players to not have to talk to each other. And I hope that, uh, I think everyone should hope that Doc Rivers um, sort of understands those dynamics better. I think Brett was much better with a young team where he had to do all of the talking. Um, but you've still got you've still got a fair number of quiet natured personalities. Um, and there's just your two stars don't talk a lot off the floor. And um, that's going to be the biggest challenge for them, I think. So, uh, you know, we, we, we go through last year, they, they lose to the Celtics. In a basketball sense, um, I think that originally the plan was that they were just going to prevent, they were just going to be so big and so defensive, they were just going to keep teams from being able to score. And um, I think right. just over the, the stretch of a season, they realized that's not necessarily going to work. Um, I think they were probably able to see that pretty early on in the regular season that their strategy sort of wasn't going to work. Um, but they were still able to win games. I, I still don't understand why there was such a disparity between their home record and their road record. It was like near historical. Um, but, you know, sort of moving on from that, the the, the first thing we, we saw is they, they, they fire Brett Brown, they bring in Doc Rivers, and then sort of right on the, that heels almost unexpectedly, they bring in Daryl Morey to sort of become the new architect. So obviously, uh, maybe more than other franchises, we certainly have a a, a deep respect and understanding of, of the architect of a basketball franchise. Um, you know, we, we went through what what Sam Hinkie uh, was trying to put together. And I guess maybe this is just a hypothetical, but, um, you know, bearing what what happened with wh- whether there's an N- NBA conspiracy or whatever happened, if Hinkie was still running this team, Jason, do you think that the Sixers would have progressed into this sort of this next gear or or would they would we still be in the midst of the process um uh, one can assume maybe that he still takes ben simmons but beyond that it's sort of all all theoretical but from what you knew maybe just from a, a, being an observer of sam hinky uh would we all still be watching teams tank or do you think that there was a plan in place that hinky would have gone into win mode uh would the sixers have been able to get there without having to go through what has been sort of a, a, a circle or a, a, a circus of, of, of general management, a circle of uh, a circus of, of front office people. Yeah, I think you make a, a good point. I think it even goes a year before the Ben Simmons draft. I, th- I think that the Okafor draft was a, a, f- uh, was a function of a couple of different miscalculations. Um, one, I think they didn't develop enough relationships with agents to make Kristaps Porzingis um, even open to being drafted at that position. I think their their scouting would have had him rated higher. I think Sam took a shot that he could do a, a final tank year showcase Okafor offensively while Joel Embiid uh, sat out a second year uh, and then flip Okafor for a profit while also getting a high draft pick. Um, but when you look at heading into that uh, Ben Simmons draft, I think he would have taken Ben Simmons and I think they would have, they would have uh, turned the corner and, um, I, I honestly, and a lot of people will say this, but I honestly think at that point this franchise was kind of idiot-proof. Um, but they managed to shortcut their way into sort of limiting their ceiling anyway. Um, I think they've lost a couple of years of opportunity and upside um, by trying to rush it. And, but I can't tell you that Sam Hinkie wasn't, wasn't pressured even in the, in that final year to get some more marketable players on the business side, people that could put up some real stats and sell some jerseys. 
So it's it's really hard to say, but I do think that over the last week we've seen what looks like a reset. I do think Sam Hankey would have found a way with the massive war chest of assets to find a star that was complementary. Um, I don't think it would have been an Al Horford type. I think it would have followed much more in the the mold of someone who really could space the floor for their for their two stars. Um, so I think they really missed an opportunity of a couple of years with the Colangelo shortcut, trying to uh, let's say climb a ladder or climb a tree to get to the moon. Yeah, see, the, the, the thing that I always I think about is we haven't seen a general manager that's able to do do the tank, acquire the assets, and then also, you know, go into, you know, the, the into battle mode or into, into, into the win, win mode, you know, or, or, or I guess like the Pat Riley mode. Um, so uh, I'm curious, do you think that we are moving into truly the second phase of the process now with Daryl Morey is the is the franchise sort of telegraphing to both the fan base and the rest of the league that um, this is a team that is going to construct uh, not just a, uh, you know, a, a more competitive roster, but a, a roster that they, they believe is going to take advantage of the what is probably a smaller window than most with, with uh, Joel Embiid. And it, was it because of how he succeeded sort of with the way that he built Houston um, was he why they, they when the opportunity arose, had to snag him because of the situation the franchise is in? Yeah, I think I think he's really positioned them to one be opportunistic at the trade deadline if if what they've what they've assembled so far, which is basically surround them with shooters, you know, sim- simply put, um, if that doesn't quite work, they've got now smaller contracts that can be packaged within you know 60 days before the deadline to either make a move this year but long term uh next summer they have a lot more cap flexibility than it looked like they would have even three weeks ago so i i think you know there's a one a two year um horizon i think he's thinking about this from and if someone like a james harden becomes suddenly available at the uh at the deadline forces his way out and that'll be interesting to see how that works with demarcus cousins in in houston um then i think he's ready to pounce on that he can make that money work um but i think what he's gotten himself out from under is that long-term sort of cap hell that that they were going to be in so you know they have options now so so that you know we sort of talked about the past and let's sort of talk about the present and the present was you know last week we we had the nba draft the sixers come out of there with with three players i know that i i had talked to you the day of the draft and you sort of floated the name isaiah joe um as a guy that the sixers would probably acquire and that morning uh and he does end up coming to the sixers i think probably a lot deeper in the draft than uh, we expected. Um, but also on draft night, they they acquire Seth Curry. Um, they acquire uh, Tyrese Maxey, who I think on everything that I read was uh, rated much higher than the 21st pick. Uh, and they get a guy named Paul Reed, who is a sort of a crossbreed center forward, uh, who they say I guess is a little underweight, um, but certainly does a lot of interesting things. Um as a as sort of like a like a center forward position what what are your thoughts of the way the Sixers handled the draft how they handled draft night uh and on the whole what do you think of what they come out uh looking like after uh after the draft uh, honestly I didn't expect to be as excited myself uh coming out uh of draft night as as I was yeah I think uh I think we can't ignore one the biggest moment I think for draft night, the aha moment for me was LeBron James texting uh, or uh, tweeting at Tyrese Maxey after that pick. Um, I went back really quickly, and, and by the time he was available to us to interview him, I just flat out asked him, um, 
So you worked out in L.A. with LeBron James and Ben Simmons all summer, huh? And he confirmed that he had. So uh, I think there's a, you know, we underestimate, I think we overestimate the power coaches have in the NBA. We maybe overestimate the impact that general managers and front offices have. But I think we really underestimate how powerful agents are. And something tells me that Maxie fell in that draft because Clutch Sports wanted him to land in Philadelphia. But having said that, when I look at Maxie, I don't, I think everybody should be excited about his upside and his potential. But physically, I think he's still going to struggle. He's got to, he's got to put on muscle. His lower body, I think, is, uh, now he did say that he added three to four inches of, of vertical leap over the summer, but photos I've seen of him in that gym with Ben Simmons, uh, his his lower body looks a little underdeveloped uh, for, for me. I think it's one of the things that took Shake Milton a couple of years to really develop lower body um, strength, which allowed him to get his get to his spots, get his shots, and, and credibly defend. Uh, so Maxi has an upside defensively. I think his shot looks good, much better than, than his stats would say. Um, I think he's going to be a good long-term uh, player for them. I wouldn't immediately expect him to contribute right out, off the bat. Isaiah Joe, the same thing. I think Isaiah Joe is an effortless shooter, effortless stroke from any distance uh, he's not a guy that has to load up uh once he, so you don't worry about the college three-point line moving back to the to the 23-9 uh nba line affecting him um but he's really light and he's weak and he's both of those guys are gonna have to put on a lot of muscle um paul reed you know he's a guy i want to see in delaware a bunch and i'll Watch him there before I give you an opinion on him. Okay, I just don't have one yet. So the other the other part, obviously, of draft night is is you know the Sixers come out with Seth Curry. They get Danny Green in the um, in the move to move um, Al Horford. What are your thoughts about sort of this this new look? Um, you know, uh, also uh, um, Josh Richardson is also moved shortly after I guess the draft. Uh, oh no, he was moved in the in the in the Seth Curry deal, um, yep. and then we pick up Dwight Howard. Uh, oddly enough, um, and uh, you know you don't necessarily think you're going to hear a name like Dwight Howard as uh, a backup center for a veteran minimum, but here we are. Uh, what what are your thoughts about the the new pieces? It's certainly a very different looking team already. Um, and do you think that a the Sixers are done, and b if they're not done? Is there one more guy that you think would be a really interesting piece to to bring in and sort of round out what they've got going on? Um, my gut tells me they're mostly done between now and the beginning of this season. Um, I think they're going to go into camp with basically what they've got. I think when you look at those two trades, uh, Josh Richardson on balance, if we're just at a park, better player than Seth Curry, but um, the fit wasn't there. He, he is not a good enough catch-and-shoot uh, three-point shooter to play off of a Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Uh, good defender, but not such a lockdown defender that it um, made this the elite defense they, they wanted. Seth Curry... Um, is exactly the guy you want to put next to those other two, right? He may not be J.J. Redick as far as running through off-ball screens quickly and um, and those kind of things, but he is absolutely deadly, and you can't leave him open. So he's going to create pa- he's going to create passing lanes. He's going to create driving lanes for Ben Simmons. He's going to help si- uh, Ben Simmons in so many ways. I think it's. Uh, it's it's going to allow them to do a lot of different things on the floor. Uh, same thing with Al Horford versus Danny Green. Al Horford still probably on balance a better NBA player than than Danny Green is, but Danny Green 
again, is a guy at a position they kind of need and has shown to be able to make big shots in playoff series um, and has, you know, multiple championships now. So I think they traded talent for fit uh, and they also traded uh, major contract liability for cap flexibility um, so are they are they a better team right out of the gate? I think they probably are much better defense uh, offense. Um, and the defensive side just didn't quite fit anyway. So I don't think they lose much from the team that they, they that they had. But um, and, and and they may they may have more fun. And I, I mean that's sort of a weird thing to say. But when you bring in guys, certainly watching those teams that had. Uh, J.J. Redick and, and, and Balotelli and, and guys like that, uh, they seemed like they were having more fun, and sometimes uh, it, it helps to enjoy what you're doing. Uh, so I, I'd be interested to see uh, if you start to see sort of that joy come back into, like, uh, Joel Embiid's games. Um, I remember coming out of college, one of the big knocks on Ben Simmons was obviously that, that he wasn't necessarily a shooter, but also that he, he, he didn't seem to have, like, the energy on defense or – or, or, you know, for lack of a better term, sometimes it looked like he didn't give a shit. But um, I think his NBA pr- career has sort of shown that that particular knock, um, that he doesn't care or is, uh, is an un- unmotivated defender, uh, is, is just wrong. Uh, that maybe it was the fit at LSU that he just, he just didn't care about being in college. Um, but... Um, what do you think, looking at this year, you know, is this the pivotal year for Ben Simmons to sort of start to become uh, one of the the true superstars in the NBA? He's he's made his all-star teams. He's won his rookie of the year. Uh, is this the point where you see him make a, make a, make a turn towards superstar? I think that Joel Embiid has already sort of put his stamp on, you know, one of the best big men, if not the best big men in the East Con- Eastern Conference, if not the whole league. But... Ben Simmons certainly has a lot of competition, but not a lot of people have his skill set. So what do you think is is 2021 for Ben? I mean, for me, offensively, it's, it's really simple with him. Um, he has to desperately want to live at the free throw line. And if he does that, he will attack the paint with a different level of aggression I think he will be a better finisher around the around the paint. He will put the other team's best defensive players in foul trouble, even if he shoots 55, 60 percent from the from the free throw line. He should be attacking the paint, uh, attacking the rim relentlessly. All of those cute little finishes, they have to stop. Um, he has to try to dunk on everyone even at the expense of offensive fouls sometimes if he does that i think his offensive game can really blossom i am not a guy that thinks he should be shooting three pointers because i watch him pre-game every time and i watch the ball come out of his hands and and would it be nice for him to be you know some sort of pop threat to the corner sure but i really don't care about that i i think he should you know, run the fast break whenever possible. And then um, when they get in a half court situation, uh, he should just be taking every opportunity to attack the rim, live at the line. I really don't care. You know, shoot for shoot seven for 15 from the line. That is fouls you're going to put on the other team. Joel Embiid does this. Um, the value in getting the other team's bigs into foul trouble helps everyone else on the team so that to me offensively that's the big thing is now i do think um he they have an opportunity to really play him as a really small ball five uh because he is such a good defender and while he's not a shot blocker he's so good at recognizing the opposing team's plays and getting to the right spots getting in passing lanes being in the right spot that I think he can be a credible five man, and that allows him to play in a half court offense a little bit differently, and allows him to be on the floor with Seth Curry more. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him play some small ball five. 
Is there anything – do you get a sense uh, of potentially the reasons why he doesn't uh, go into this ultra-aggressive attack mode all the time? Is the criticism that there is a fear of failure or a fear of doing something that he may not be 100% comfortable or have 100% confidence that he will be successful at, is that a fair criticism? Yeah, I mean, these are we forget these are these are human beings, and uh, they hear everything everyone says about them. And um, his form is not good, and it's not. And we, they, you can watch all the empty gym videos you want, but the reality <laughs> is, it's not good, and he's got to ignore that. And the line. The free throw line is a lonely place when there's 20,000 people, uh, you know, in the arena. And going back to your point, Gene, about why they were so good at home versus away, I think Joel Embiid really feeds off of high-intensity crowd energy, both good and bad. So he does really well in primetime games, in high-energy arenas, even when they're rooting against him. Uh, and he really struggles. If you look at his numbers in Atlanta or Orlando, mm -hmm. those are like the stinkers that he throws out, those dead arenas. Um, ben Simmons, I think that line with 20,000 people around who are screaming at you and you do hear the voices that you can't shoot, it's not a good feeling. And he's just got to get over that anyway. And it's, it's, it's a different thing than asking a guy to just bomb three pointers when, when uh, in the flow of a game. You just got to get over. You got to recognize all of the downstream benefits of being at the line. Forget about whether you make them or miss them. Ignore that. And the other players are in his ear too about it. He's just got to get over that. He's got to grow up and get over it. I, I think that. Um... You know, certainly looking at the way it's constructed, um, I mean, Ben Simmons is always a like sort of a a, a triple double uh, threat every game. But I think you may see his maybe his points per game come down a little bit. But I I really do think that you might see his assists per game go up because I think that there's going to be sort of a you know like you were saying if if he's attacking the rim, you're going to start to see those defenses start to creep closer and closer to the paint, and they're going to finally have these guys. Uh, that if he can just drive and, and kick out, you know, late in games, uh, you know, maybe you, you'll start to see third quarters where they, they just they just open up these 10, 12, 15 point leads on teams uh, in a matter of minutes where they're able to just sort of find another another gear, sort of the way they, they were playing two years ago uh, or, or three years ago, I guess, at this point. Um, yeah. And I, I guess sort of to wrap this whole thing up, uh, one thing that I, I don't know that a lot of people get exposure to but Jason I think you you're probably sort of a, around a lot more is what what do you think is the future of the NBA G League now obviously uh right now it's sort of murky because we don't know how things are going to wrap up with with covid we 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 you know will they even be having a G League season um but how do you think you know in your experience certainly your ties to the the Delaware team how do you see the NBA utilizing the G League um, do you think that uh, it's uh, been a net positive or a big win the way that it's sort of developed? And um, what's the future for the G League? Yeah, I, I get a lot more satisfaction covering the Bluecoats. Um, and I, I do sort of cover both. So I cover a lot of games. Um, it's a fascinating league in that different teams have different goals. They use their G League team for different reasons some of them are trying out um experimental schematic stuff uh which is really what the rockets um i guess it's the rio grand vipers i think um they were you know let's see how extreme we can do the how can we shoot 83s in a game right and they were trying that kind of thing out down in the g league so i think we might see more of that um, other teams just sort of collect guys and use it like a character funnel and just see if somebody stands out and maybe flashes a, a skill set and give them a chance. So you look at a team like 
I'm going to pick on them, but um, the the uh, the Pistons organization. They just sort of collect guys that have a good physical profile or maybe one standout skill, throw the ball out there, let them just throw it around and do whatever. Um, the Sixers were more in the former camp where they were they were trying to develop a consistent scheme. They ran the exact same stuff in Delaware that they did in Philadelphia, but they didn't have the same type of players. So they weren't a very good team. But what they did do was develop guys like a Shake Milton, who became a, a, a truly valuable player for them. Um, and I think there is there's a lot of value in that. I would expect to see, and I talked to Isaiah Joe Thursday um, about this. I, and one of the things I asked him and I asked Shake when he was a rookie, would you rather play 30 minutes a night in the G League or would you rather ride the bench and practice with the NBA team? And uh, Shake was considering himself an NBA player, you know, knew he was getting a ton of minutes and, and any shot he wanted, ultimate green light in Delaware, but he always thought of himself as an NBA player. He just wanted to be there and he, and he ma- managed to, to make, that, uh, make that leap in his second year. Uh, Joe wants to, he says that he can only get better by uh, playing in games. So I think those are the kind of guys, your second round picks, where you throw them down there, their weaknesses are exposed, but they can develop um, into professionals, get professional habits, be in the weight room. Uh, that's the value of it. Um, but on a on a personal level, it's a totally different thing when you're seeing 22, 23-year-old guys who got drafted in the second round or maybe didn't get drafted at all. They're chasing a dream. They're playing for like no money. You know, they're playing for a per diem and, I don't know, 25, 35K a year um, away from home. You know, very few of them are locals. Um, it's a pretty cool thing to watch people working so hard to chase a dream. So I think there's always going to be a mixed bag as far as results from the G League. But Josh Richardson was a G League guy. He was discovered out of the G League not a high draft prospect, uh, turned himself into a guy that's probably going to get paid $16, $18 million. Robert Covington, G League guy, undrafted, you know, extremely valuable player for NBA teams, got a massive contract. Um, there are there are always going to be, be guys that run the gauntlet, may get through the crucible of that erratic play night to night down there. Um, and pop, and it's just it's just up to the teams to sort of take the right chances on the right guys and give those guys the green light when necessary to really see what they can do. So uh, the the sort of the uh, unofficial favorite sixer, I think, of of Potadelphia is, uh, and I don't necessarily want to speak completely out of turn, but but Dave, I think you'll agree with me that Batiste Thibel has sort of become our. Uh, uh, our, our our guy to watch. Um, you sort of hear him lumped in every uh, in every possible big big move. You know, uh, you know. Oh, we'll get Horford. We'll 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 or we'll get uh, we'll get some big star. We'll get LeBron, and it, it'll be Matisse Thybul and a bunch of throw-ins, and and the Lakers are going to go for it. Uh, we love Matisse Thybul too, but um, do do you think that he is overrated, underrated, or? rated exactly the way the place that Matisse Thibault should be rated at? Uh, all three. I think he's, I think he's, uh, he gambles a little too much defensively. I think that hurt him play time, uh, uh, in playing time. I think he's fantastic at recovering from some of, some of his gambles. Um, physically, I think his profile is really good. I think he's a really bad dribbler (laughs) and not ever going to create offense for himself or others. But I think his, his shot mechanics are pretty good. I think he'll be an NBA average catch and shoot three pointer guy. I think he, I think Danny green, when you, when you look at like an NBA comp, you know, a Danny Green like career wouldn't surprise me 
at all. But I don't think Matisse Thibel is an all-star NBA player at any point in his career. I just don't think he has the ball skills or the or the finer uh, shot creation skills to ever be an NBA all-star. So maybe but, maybe Sixers fans shouldn't look at him as like, uh, you know, Dominic Brown level of untouchable, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think he'll have a better career than Doug. Brown. <laughs> but, um, but if you could package him uh, as like the, the really high upside sweetener in a Zach Levine deal, like you don't think oh. twice. Yeah, I always thought that was going to be Zaire Smith, but I guess uh, what he was is the really high upside guy for a center you've never heard of. <laughs> uh, no one has watched Zaire Smith more than me, aside maybe some of I'm the... I'm sorry. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in Philadelphia and in, in Delaware, so I've pretty much seen every game Zaire has has played. And, uh, you know, you're talking about a guy who's, a, who's probably a good three inches shorter than... Matisse Thibel, uh, much less mature um, from just a just a, a person. You know, Matisse is a pretty mature guy. I think he's 23 or 24. We forget he's he's pretty old. He's older than Zaire. But you know, he's Zaire is like six two and could barely dribble a basketball. And like, how many of those guys become really useful players in the NBA? And they tried to develop him, but you saw Detroit waived him after that trade. Yeah, they didn't even they didn't keep him. So it, it'll be interesting to see where he. I have a feeling that he's going to pop up somewhere. It, 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 I think that he just sort of had the had the tape that's going to give somebody's going to give him another another shot. I, I just don't know. I feel like uh, Matisse Thybul became the player that they sort of were hoping to draft when they drafted Zaire Smith. That maybe that's just my takeaway, but. I honestly think they got tricked into thinking Zaire Smith was 6'5". And, you know, if you look at that draft night, they talked about him being a 6'5 player who was a power forward in college, so you can't really judge him because, you know, he's going to play a different position. No, he's a 6'2 guy that played power forward in high school and power forward in college, and you're going to hope that you can teach him to be a guard. Um, You know, if I was Zaire, I'd be looking overseas and probably get a bigger payday than trying to work your way back through the G League. Um, get a bigger payday, become 24 years old, learn how to dribble a basketball. You know, um, he did progress. I wrote about him about a year ago, you know, about how he is progressing, but not nearly fast enough before his rookie contract were to end and you'd have to decide whether you had to pay him or not. And that's like the poison zone for an NBA team where you get a a rookie who's kind of good and now becomes a restricted free agent. And now you have to decide, do you match a, uh, a big contract offer somewhere else? I'm surprised Detroit gave up on him, but I was not at all surprised. If you followed me at all leading up to the draft, talking about trade packages, uh, how money would work. Zaire was in literally every package I was throwing out. I know it's something that Dave and I talk about off, often. Uh, is is there any chance uh, that Markel Fultz uh, makes us regret? God damn it. I was like, man, we went through like almost an hour and no one brought yeah. up Markel Fultz. <laughs> is there any chance that he makes us uh, regret uh, trading him away the, the way we did? Uh, or... Um, you know, and, and if you have any insight as to how we did not get okay, Jason so here, Tatum, uh, just please share with me how that, that whole thing got got screwed up. But, man. Uh, <laughs> well, it's two different things. So, uh, first, let me tell you that the first time I interviewed Markel, I thought, ah, he's a rookie. And, uh, he, you know, he's a, he's a 19-year-old kid. This is what they're like. And then I interviewed Landry Shamit like two days later, and I said, oh, no, Markel's just really, really just a child. He's a child. Wow. Um, you know, everyone is so afraid to call it the yips. I've never been afraid to call it the yips. The poor kid got the yips. It is really tough. 
He does do some things well. I don't think Philadelphia will ever truly regret uh, getting off of the trade. They should regret the fact that their general manager didn't do the due diligence to know that they were dealing with an extremely, extremely sheltered child with a problematic, overbearing mother. Uh, And we've reported this, you know, she was screaming at Sixers front office people in the tunnels. Um, uh, He may at some point, you know, come out of that, but it's not going to be anywhere near the time where this, it will matter at all to the Sixers franchise. Like there's no way that it, it was time to move on. Now the the Jason Tatum stuff. Uh, I think Danny Ainge clearly saw Markel was it was a problem. Whether he saw the hitch already in the shot or not, who knows? But it does. It look. It took me five minutes to see that he was a child. Um, these guys are paid to do this. Um, Tatum to me at that draft. I think a lot of people were high on him. But everyone is high on every Duke player coming out of Duke. So the vast majority of Duke players are overdrafted because of their, um, they tend to be highly skilled at a young age, but uh, not elite athletes. And that tends to, to, they tend to struggle to, to translate to the next level. Whereas the Kentucky guys tend to be more raw uh, in their finer basketball skills, but they, they're all sort of built for the NBA. Um, so I think Duke guys tend to get overdrafted. He's one guy that was able to pop and translate and really become a fantastic player. But, you know, is he a perfect fit? Was he a perfect fit on paper with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons at that time? I don't think he was. Was he going to fall to three to them if they had just stayed uh, stayed there? No. Would Danny Ainge have traded that number one pick for the number three pick if he wasn't 100% sure that Tatum was going to fall to number three? No. So I don't think Tatum to the Sixers was ever truly on the table unless Colangelo just basically lied to everyone including the agents, pulled a switcheroo, traded for the number one pick, promised to draft Fultz, and just lied to everyone and drafted Tatum. That's the honestly, only way that I think it would have happened. I honestly don't think, as far as Sixers fans go, they have a problem with Fultz being a bust. I don't think we have a problem with not getting Tatum. The thing that sticks in my craw is that Danny Ainge knew he wanted to make a move, and he said, who's the sucker at the table right now? Right. And it was the Sixers. Yep. And Brian <laughs> Colangelo's ego was so. Um, the size of a collar. <laughs> it was so blatantly obvious that he could be baited into something like that. Uh, quite frankly, at that, I, I think that was the draft where I really, really thought forget fit, um, trade back. Get De'Aaron Fox, and I think that the, the trade offer was like five and ten with the Kings. Um, and I was a big believer in De'Aaron Fox, still a big believer. Not a great fit from a spacing standpoint with Simmons, but at that time, you know, uh, or I would have traded back, not traded up. All right, Dave, you got anything else? Uh, I I feel like that's uh, that's that's. No, no a- I, I don't want to leave. I don't want to like lay it on like that down note. Like, what's <laughs> okay. the, what's what's the season going to look like? What can we expect from the Sixers? Where do you see us falling in the pecking order of everything? Are we going to win the NBA championship? I mean, if I was right, it would be the first time I was right. So I'll give you a guess with that caveat, right? Uh, I'm bound to be right one of these decades. Um, 
you know, I think Ben Simmons is going to create a lot of open three-pointers for people. I think if Seth Curry knocks down 45% of his threes, this, this is a really, really tough team. I think they are built for the playoffs. I think the Dwight Howard thing signals that they really want to dominate the offensive glass, which they should. Um, they should want to dominate the offensive glass. Um, they Milwaukee, we have to see, are they, are they for real in the playoffs? Um, we saw that they, they haven't been, uh, I think Bud tends to get exposed in the playoffs. The heat, I think they shot their, their, uh, shot in the bubble. That's as good as you can expect them to be. Don't expect that repeat performance from them it seems like toronto of, of all the teams of recent ilk is the one that's really fading back yeah yeah they're they're gonna they're gonna be in a tough spot i think um the the nets uh you know kd i think worst case scenario he's the best center in the game if his explosion doesn't come back uh if he comes back to be the old kd he's mvp caliber Unless Kyrie Irving and his nonsense uh, derails that team. There's a lot of things that can go wrong with with Brooklyn. Uh, Did the Celtics get any better? I don't think they did, quite frankly. Uh, They didn't have a Hayward anyway in the playoffs, but not a big believer in them. There's a couple of guys on that team that I really love, but... I think they're like the Heat. They have sort of a limited upside. I think the Sixers have as much upside potential as anyone if the chemistry and the fit works. But I still think they are one move away from where even they want to be. Um, and that could happen at the trade deadline or it could happen next summer. So, you know, I think I think they're going to be probably in the Eastern Conference Finals. And then it's just a matter of, you know, are they in a bubble again? Are they knocking down all those three-pointers? Do they go cold? They can't afford to go cold. Um, you know, I, th- I think they're they're in the mix, which is more than we would have said a month ago. There's hope. Yeah, I mean I that's that the, what we need right now. We're in this. And like, they're way more interesting. They were a joyless, just a joyless. Yeah. Even for them, there was just it was it was. Uh, they were interesting again, which is really all we can all ask for, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, going into last season, I remember being as psyched about a, a team as I had ever been, and they managed to just suck the the life out of everything no and we were fired up yeah and then you know by the end of the year it was hard to sort of that playoff series was one of the hardest slogs (laughs) i've had to watch since the eagles played cleveland last week Um, it was just get me to the flyers yeah it was it was rough it was rough it was and that was and that was after not having sports for four months and i still couldn't get get excited for a playoff series so uh, it was uh Terrible. So, yeah, with the Eagles being bad, I've sort of uh, gone all in on the NBA. Uh, I have uh, devoted a lot of my time to watching uh, long live streams uh, provided by the Painted Lines, who uh, have been doing great coverage. So uh, if you aren't already checking those guys out, you should be. Follow them on Twitter. Uh, check out their YouTube channel. Uh, if you're not following us, we are the Potadelphia. You can find us at Potadelphia on Twitter. Uh, if I didn't tell you this earlier, my name is Gene Zelak. I am at Producer Gene. Uh, to my uh, right-hand side of the screen is Dave Viorio. His Twitter handle is at Fat underscore Lobster. And Jason, what is your Twitter handle? Uh, Jay Blevins NBA. Yeah, so... Uh, if 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 if, if uh, Wojo doesn't drop the bomb, then Jay probably has it in his back pocket. So, um, with that being said, thank you all for listening to our bonus episode this week. Uh, we will be back with you on uh, probably Monday before the Eagles game. Yeah, we're going to uh, tell you how many points we're going to beat the Seahawks by. Right. Uh, if you hear from us twice next week, then something miraculous happened. Uh, and. Uh, 
you know, I probably walked on water or something. Otherwise, Russell Wilson uh, will probably just have another uh, mediocre day. Rate, review, subscribe, do all the wonderful things, and uh, we are out of here.